Well, our message series this month, I've entitled Jumping Hurdles. And what are these hurdles we're talking about? Well, hurdles are obstacles that God allows into our lives to test us. And when we jump those hurdles, when we pass the test, we, we grow stronger and we continue on the road, we continue on the path that God has for us, God's plan for our lives. Now, hurdles come at us from all directions. Oh. You know, we were singing the song and the Lord spoke to us about battles. Well, they're kind of interchangeable. A hurdle's a battle. We can have many names. It's a trial. All kinds of things. We have names for these hurdles that come into our lives. But one big source of hurdles in our lives really is the godless culture around us. If you haven't figured out, not everybody around you is a believer following God, right? There are people around us in our culture that are not following God, that are going in a different direction. In Romans 12, 2, now there's a white page in the middle of your bulletin. I forgot to bring one here, but a white page there that has the outline that I'm following this morning, and you can take that out and follow along. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so this verse begins by telling us not to be conformed to this world. Now when one looks at the underlying Greek for this word conformed, it means don't let yourself be squeezed into the world's mold. Don't let yourself be squeezed into the mold of the world. The world has a pattern and it wants to squeeze you into that pattern. But that pattern is, is not God's will. This is like peer pressure from the world and all the people around you. That's a hurdle that we must overcome. And we have a fallen tendency, all of us, if we are honest enough to admit it, that we're tempted to follow the crowd. We think if everybody is going a certain direction, it must be right. There must be something true about it if so many people are going in that direction. The majority of people are always right, right? It's like wrong. The majority is not always right. Jesus taught that the crowd, the majority of people, are on a path to destruction. We're going to talk more about that in a minute or two. The majority is headed in the wrong direction. And so rather than being conformed to the world, this verse tells us we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This week I was kind of getting into the Greek. So the Greek word behind transformed is the word we get for metamorphosis. And the picture that comes to my mind is the woolly caterpillar who's just crawling along and you know eventually spins a cocoon. And out of the cocoon comes what? Another caterpillar? No, a beautiful butterfly. It's an example in nature of metamorphosis. This caterpillar being changed into something beautiful. And God is at work transforming us into something beautiful. And how does this transformation happen? Well, it tells us in this verse, it happens through testing. The test that God allows into our lives. The things, if we had a choice, we'd want to avoid. How many people want to go into the battle? How many people want to keep leaping hurdles? But God allows those to come into our lives to test us so that we can be transformed, so that we can discern, it says, what is the will of God? 
The will of God is good. It's perfect. The will of God is God's plan for our lives. Well, the route, the road he wants us to follow. And so as we are tested by the hurdles that God allows to come into our life, as we rely on him to jump those hurdles, to overcome, he transforms us. And we learn better what the will of God is. And so to jump, jump the hurdles in life, to not be squeezed into the mold of the world, we must go against the flow, the flow of the world. And that's what I've entitled the message today. And God wants to teach us to follow Jesus even when the majority of people may be going a different direction or are going a different direction. Now, Jesus taught about this in Matthew seven thirteen and 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And so in this very important teaching, Jesus tells us that there are two gates and two ways in life. First of all, there is a narrow gate. The narrow gate leads to a hard way. But it leads, the end destination is life, eternal life. The other gate is a wide gate. It's easy to get into and it leads to an easy way, an easy path. But the end result is destruction. Now in case you're not sure which gate to enter into. Jesus tells us at the beginning, enter by the narrow gate. Okay, I'm going to give you the answer. Here's the test. Narrow gate, wide gate, hard way, easy way. Which one is Jesus telling us to do? Pick the narrow gate. Pick the hard way because the end result is incredible. Now the people that pick the wide gate, they don't know where they're heading. But then Jesus tells us it is destruction. How many people enter the wide gate towards destruction? Many people, he says. We've got many versus few. And I read that to say the majority is on the path to destruction. They don't know it. And few people, the minority, are on the way to life. The way that leads to life the hard way. The flow is going through the wide gate. That is the gate we don't want to go through. And so this morning, we're going to learn how to trust God and go against the flow of the, of the world. Our story this morning is taken from the Old Testament. It's about a young king named Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah lived in a very dark time in Israel. And he did not have a good upbringing. His father, King Ahaz, was an evil king, to say the very least. His father worshipped idols, encouraged the nation to worship idols, and he even sacrificed two of Hezekiah's brothers on these idols to his pagan gods. The worship of God was practically non-existent when Hezekiah became king. And yet God used this king when everything was against him. The whole nation was going the wrong direction. His family had gone the wrong direction. His father had gone the wrong direction. God used Hezekiah to go against the flow of the evil past 
to go against his upbringing and follow the narrow way of righteousness. And so we're going to learn from his example how God can use us uh, in a culture that I believe is headed in the wrong direction to make a difference. The first principle we're going to learn about is about living a lifestyle of worship. We're going to read the verse and then we're going to give the background to it. 2 Chronicles 29, verse 4 and 5. He, that is Hezekiah, brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. So Hezekiah knew that the worship of the one true God needed to be restored. People were worshiping idols. Nobody was coming to the temple to worship anymore. It was, it was, um, dec- just, uh, it was a mess. I mean, carry out the filth from the holy place. All kinds of bad stuff was in there, and it was not being used for the worship of the one true God. And so Hezekiah began by assembling together the spiritual leaders, the people who are supposed to be spiritual leaders, the Levites and the priests who were not doing what they're supposed to do. He assembled them and he says, you need to consecrate yourself. You need to rededicate yourself to serving the Lord. Uh, the physical temple was in a state of disrepair and he needed these spiritual leaders to, first of all, consecrate themselves and secondly, begin to restore the temple to be a place of worship. Hezekiah then goes on in verse 31. Then Hezekiah said, You have now, speaking to these leaders, consecrated yourselves to the Lord. Come near, bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. And the assembly, that's the people, brought sacrifices and thank offerings, and all who were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. And so this is a multi-stage process. First of all, the spiritual leaders consecrated themselves to the Lord. Then they restored the temple to make it suitable for worship. And then they spoke to the people, and the people began to bring their sacrifices and offerings to the temple to worship the one true God once again. The sacrifices were for the atonement of their sins. And the offerings were to give thanks to the Lord for His presence and to provide support for the ongoing upkeep of the house of the Lord and the spiritual leaders there. And so as Hezekiah began to restore the worship of the one true God, first with the leaders and then the hearts of the people were turned in the right direction and they were willing to follow as well. In verse 36, it says, And Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had provided for the people. For the thing came about suddenly. Let me read that again. The thing came about suddenly. You would think in a nation that was going the wrong direction, that had been going the wrong direction for decades under his father, you would think it would have took years and years and years to transform the culture of that nation. But the people rejoiced. Because out of the blue, a new king came came in and followed God, and things changed. Worship was renewed. It came about suddenly. 
God used the courageous heart of King Hezekiah and the spiritual leaders who repented of the way they had been going and turned back to God and the people who repented of their ways in the past and allow God to bring about an amazing revival of worship. And so the nation began to live a lifestyle of worship. And so we see here, as we think about our own lives, we see here an example through the life of Hezekiah, the importance of corporate worship. This is when believers meet together to worship the Lord. And that era of time in the Old Testament, the people met together at the temple to worship together. Today, we meet together as a church to worship God. And as we worship together, the presence of God is here. And He works in our lives in, in many different ways. The Spirit speaks to us. God encourages us. God strengthens us. He brings conviction of sin to us. He brings healing to us. And, and we could go on and on. And this worshiping together as a church family, coming together in the presence of God is, is so important. And guess what? Satan seeks to discourage people from meeting together to worship God. He spreads little lies like, you don't have to go to church. You can worship God in your car. Well, actually, that's true. You can <laughs> worship God. In, and, and sometimes the temptations of Satan, they contain some truth. And we're going to talk about that, that you can worship outside of church. That's true. But there's something special. There's a reason God calls us to assemble together. To worship God together where His Spirit is present in a special way. God's Word instructs us not to neglect. I don't have time for all the verses that feed into this, but not to neglect coming together, assembling together for worship, lest we miss God's blessing. We worship God. To worship God in spirit and truth, as He tells us to, is requires us consecrating ourselves to God, just as the priests had to consecrate themselves to God. Well, we don't use that word a lot, do we? It simply means to, to confess any known sin in your life, ask God to forgive it, recommit yourself to God on a regular basis. It's not something you do once in life. You recommit your life regularly. It's a good thing to do it every day, to be honest. Worship. Of course, we worship when we sing, but worship is a far broader topic than simply singing. We hear God's word. We bring thank offerings to God, to the house of the Lord. And as we worship together, God fills our hearts with joy. He renews us spiritually. And the blessing that we receive as we come together in corporate worship strengthens us and enables us to go about the rest of the week living a lifestyle of worship. Not only does God want us to live a lifestyle of worship, He also wants us to live to follow God's Word. I'm going to jump over to Second Chronicles 30, verse 1. It says, And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. So what's going on here? Well, the Passover was a festival commanded in God's word to give thanks to God for what? 
Well, for the death angel passing over the children of Israel as they were called out of slavery in Egypt many, many years ago. It was something that they were to remember how God rescued them uh, when he sent the death angel, and uh, which brought judgment on the firstborn of the Egyptians. Now the Passover had been neglected by evil kings in the land of Judah for many, many years. They had not been following God's word. They had not been doing the things that God told them to do. And Hezekiah, as he read God's word, he saw that they weren't keeping the Passover. He knew the importance of following God's word, and so he invited Judah, which was the nation that he ruled over, and Israel, which was the nation to the north. Israel was now a divided kingdom, and they didn't have much to do with one another, but he invited even the neighbors to the north to come as well to celebrate the Passover. He desired unity to bring blessing as they follow God's word together. Verse 22, and Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord. So they ate the food of the festival for seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord, the God of their fathers. And so the Levites and the priests who had been consecrated to the Lord to serve in the temple, they were encouraged by Hezekiah to do their part in this Passover celebration. And so the people of the land also came. They brought their offerings. They brought their sacrifices to the temple. They celebrated for seven days, as Scripture instructed, this Passover festival. And that celebration involved not only remembering what God had done in the past to their forefathers. We see this repeated in all these verses. It speaks of the Lord, the God of their fathers. Their fathers who had followed God. The fathers who God had rescued they gave thanks to God for the past and they gave thanks to Him in worship. And then it says, interestingly enough, in verse 27, then the priests and the Levites, the spiritual leaders, arose and blessed the people and their voice was heard and their prayer came to His holy habitation in heaven, to God in heaven. And so as the people followed God's word, as they were having their worship restored as they were following God's word and celebrating the Passover, the spiritual leaders blessed the people. That's a form of prayer where they're asking for God's blessing upon the people as the people were following God. And it says that God heard those prayers. The prayers arose into heaven, which means the blessing came down. The blessing came down upon the people as they observed the Passover, they lived a lifestyle of worship, and they were following God's word. And so I believe that genuine revival, either in our personal lives, in our church family, in our city, in our nation, is always based on a return to God's word. Not just some of God's word, not just a pet verse or two, but a return to all of God's word. Choosing to follow God's word means learning about it in church. That's one of the purposes as we come together. But also personally studying it on a day-by-day -day basis. But learning what God's word is saying is not enough. That's not what we see in the story. They say, well, that's interesting. There was a Passover in the past. 
hundreds of years ago. That's nice. You know, I'm glad they had it back then. They said, this applies to us now. We're supposed to be doing this now. We're going to apply it to our lives. We're going to do something that probably most of them had never done in their lives before. We're going to do something new. We're going to follow God's word. We're going to have this Passover. They had to obey and put into practice what God's word says. And so in the same way for us today, knowing what God's word says is not enough. We can't stop there. Well, I know that story. I've heard that story before. I've read it many times. That's nothing new. Are we applying it to our lives? How does it apply to us? What is God calling us to do? And so we must, we must study and apply God's word in order to see spiritual transformation in our own lives. And so biblical churches are characterized by following God's word and worshiping him in spirit. Now the New Testament expression of the Passover is what? It's communion, the Lord's Supper. In communion, we corporately remember and worship the Lord for, his, for our salvation, for our deliverance from sin through Jesus' death on the cross, shedding his blood that our sins might be forgiven and his resurrection from the dead. And so we're going to be taking our Passover celebration this morning, our communion at the close of the message this morning as we choose to follow God's word. And finally, we live in God's protecting power. We're going to read this verse, 2 Chronicles 32.8. This is Hezekiah speaking. And we'll give the background after we read it. It says, with him, that is, uh, with him, that is an enemy, is an arm of the flesh, but with us is the Lord our God, to help us and to fight our battle to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Now, you would have thought, Hezekiah was doing all the right things, right? He was restoring worship in the temple. He was following God's word. They had celebrated the Passover, which probably hadn't been done for hundreds of years. He was doing everything right. So we would have thought, that's an easy road from here on out, right? There's not going to be any problems. Wrong. God allowed a spiritual test to come into that nation that Hezekiah was the king of. There was a world power at that time. It was the nation of Syria. And the king of Assyria was a man named Sennacherib. And he advanced, he decided it was time to advance into Judah and conquer the whole country. And so he sent hundreds of thousands of troops in they camped around all the fortified cities in Judah. Judah and the army of Hezekiah were greatly outnumbered. And outside all these cities, the armies of Sennacherib heckled and taunted the people inside and encouraging them to surrender. Hezekiah was not deterred. What did he say here? With him, with Sennacherib, the leading world power is an arm of the flesh, but with us is the Lord our God. And he is there to help us and to fight our, our battles. And so the faith of Hezekiah in this daunting circumstance was contagious. It says the people took confidence from what he was saying. They believed too. 
that God was going to fight their battles. And it's just amazing turnover, turnaround from what had been going on in the nation. They had been spiritually renewed and their faith was sparked. They believed that the Lord was with them to fight their battles. Well, as I said before, the armies of Sennacherib were around these cities and they were taunting and using their loudspeakers or whatever to beam into the city to discourage the defenders. They really didn't want to fight. They just wanted the people to surrender. And here's one of the things they said. It says, they spoke of God, the God of Jerusalem, as they spoke of the gods of the peoples of the earth, which are the work of men's hands. Uh, basically, they were saying, you can read the whole account in these chapters. I'd encourage you to read the whole story. We're just highlighting some of the verses and telling the story. But they were basically saying, look, we are the world power. We've conquered nation after nation after nation. Everyone had their gods. And we defeated them. Their gods couldn't help them. And your God is no different. And we're going to defeat you too. So give it up right now. We don't want to take the trouble to smash down your walls. Just hand it over to us. They blasphemed the name of the Lord the God, comparing him to all the other idols of the nations around. And this verse makes it clear that, what does it say? The gods of the peoples of the earth are the work of man's hands. They are nothing. They're just people making things up to worship. It's ridiculous, actually. Idols are re totally ridiculous. Whereas the one true God is the creator, the creator of everything, and has infinite wisdom and power. Well, what did Hezekiah do? Verse 20, then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this and cried out to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. Wow. In these dire circumstances, Hezekiah brought Isaiah the prophet. You know, he wrote the whole book of Isaiah. He was there. And they cried out to heaven for protection that God would fight their battles here against this world power. And God answered their prayer. He said, you know, i got trillions of angels up here. I don't need to send one for your big problem. I'm going to just send one. And it's going to solve everything. So God sent an angel. Angel went through the Syrian camp. And we read in other uh, scriptures that refer to this battle that this one angel killed 185,000 of their fighting men in one fell swoop. King Sennacherib uh, thought, you know, this is not going so well. And so he pulled the rest of his troops out and went back home to Assyria in shame. But he didn't escape. After he got back and he went to his temple worshiping his idol god, two of his own sons attacked him and killed him with the sword. And he met his end. And so through prayer, Judah was saved from an enormous army. God fought the battle for them. We also must rely on God's power for protection. Now, you may wonder, you know, why did God allow this attack? I mean, why did he allow it? Hezekiah had done so many things right. Now, the lesson for us today is that counterattacks by the enemy always come after spiritual victories. And we see this throughout the Bible. And we still are surprised. Things are going good. God is blessing me. Hey, I'm on a roll now. Boom. A battle comes. Something unexpected. 
what is going on? God, don't you love me anymore? God says, yes, I love you. I'm sending you a test. I'm going to help you win this battle. I'm going to fight this battle for you. Satan seeks to discourage us because we're doing something good. He wants to discourage us. He wants to give up following God. He wants us to doubt God's protection. But God wants us to, when we face a battle, rely on his protection. To say the same thing that Hezekiah did. The battle is not mine. It's, it's the Lord's. He's going to protect me. And I don't need to worry. And as we get the basics right, as we live a lifestyle of worship, as we follow God's word, God's going to hear our prayers when we call out to him in the midst of a battle. He's going to protect you. He's going to provide for you. He's going to guard you. As you walk on that narrow road of following Jesus. And as we pray, we're going to, as we talk about here, jump that hurdle. God's going to help us to jump that hurdle. He's going to fight our battles for us. And so this morning, do you sense that you're under attack? Are you facing a battle in your life? Sometimes they're small battles. Sometimes they're big battles. Sometimes they're intermediate-sized battles. All kinds of battles that we face. If so, if you're facing a battle in your life, it doesn't mean necessarily that you've done something wrong. That's what Satan, oh, I've done something wrong. It doesn't mean that. Most likely you're under attack because you are following Jesus, because you're doing something right. And as you pray in faith, as Hezekiah did, God will deliver you from that enemy's attack as we rely on God's power for protection. And so today we're talking about going against the flow of the world as Hezekiah did. You go against the flow of the world by living a lifestyle of worship. The world is not doing that. Both with your church family and individually in your day-by-day -day lives. You're against the flow of the world by choosing to follow God's word. Knowing it, learning what it says, and applying it to your life. You go against the flow and the attacks of the enemy by relying on God's power. That he's got this. I don't have to fight this battle in my own strength. God, the God of the universe, the God who created everything, is walking beside me and he's going to fight this battle. And as you go against the flow of the world, you follow Jesus on that narrow road. It's a narrow road that leads to life. It's a narrow road that's full of God's blessing. It's a narrow road, although it's hard, that Jesus walks with you. And so this morning, I'd like to give everyone an opportunity, if you've never before entered by this narrow gate, to get on the road to life. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. Perhaps you've done in the past, but this morning you want to recommit your life or to consecrate your life to the Lord anew this morning, and I'd encourage you to do that as well. To go through the narrow gate, you first of all need to admit that you've sinned, you've done wrong things. You've been actually, if you're not saved, headed for destruction on the wide path. You believe that Jesus died on the cross that your sins might be forgiven, you ask Him to forgive you, and you commit yourself to following Him on that narrow road for the rest of your life. That road that leads to eternal life. So let's bow our heads right now, and I'd encourage you to pray along with me if you've never prayed this prayer before for the first time, or you'd like to recommit or consecrate yourself to God this morning. Say something like this. Father, today, 
I admit that I've sinned. I've done wrong things. I've been following my own plans for my life, not yours. I turn away from that. I ask for you to forgive me. I believe Jesus died on the cross, paid the penalty for my sin that I might be forgiven. I believe he rose from the dead and he's alive today. And I commit myself to following him as my Lord and Savior, to following him on that narrow path that leads to life. In Jesus' name, amen.